to look at, ver- at chapter 25. And in doing so, I, I'm not going to spend a long time here, but I want to uh, kind of just start here. There's certain places in the Bible, certain verses that just jump out to me in their, in their simplicity, but also in their, in their sadness. And uh, I, I, I think about it. If you, we're around the Halloween season right now. Not that we necessarily celebrate it, but you can't miss it. Some houses uh, that I pass go more into Halloween decorations than they do in Christmas decorations. And one of the things they like to do is they put little tombstones in the front yard. And some of them have, you know, funny names or monikers on it. You know, like a tombstone for a guy by the name of I.B. Hurton. And um, it's okay. You'll, you'll get it. You'll get it. Uh, you know, just something like that. And. Then you've seen, I've seen real tombstones that were done either because the person that passed away was a jokester or I've even seen it done out of spite. Uh, I saw one one tombstone that on the back of it had a, a recipe. I don't remember if it was chocolate chip cookies or whatever, but it was her famous recipe. And she said, I, uh, when I'm dead, you can have my recipe. So they put it on her tombstone, you know. And, and there, there's different things. And you wonder about when, when someone uh, uh, passes the, the epitaph, what is going to be on their tombstone? And while this was not written on uh, this man's tombstone, I want you to listen to how succinctly and and just simply it sums up an entire life it's hard when you when you try to take a life and you distill it down to one statement or one phrase that's a pretty hard thing to do but but the bible does it well here for a second chronicles chapter 25 uh, Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem his mother's name was her of Jerusalem And then watch this, (laughs) verse 2. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Sounds good, right? Yet not with a whole heart. It's just, you know, when when you read the the, the kings and the chronicles and you you start getting that, it, it will say, this king reigned for this long and he did not what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then every once in a while, you get one of those good kings and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But can you imagine, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not with a whole heart and I don't have time to flesh it out you could go down and you would find that that for every good thing he did it seemed like he did two bad things and and his life ended in murder and and it's not well regarded that half-heartedness you ever had somebody apologize to you and you knew they didn't mean it mm-hmm. yeah half-hearted have you ever apologized to someone and you didn't mean it mm-hmm. yeah it's all like that <laughs> Now, now. Soren, and, and I, I know I'll butcher this name, Soren uh, Kierkegaard lived in Denmark in the early to mid-19th century. His personality was one that was dark and brooding. He was so preoccupied, they say, with guilt and with death. But those that knew him, those that were around, uh, would never have seen it. See, he made it a practice to appear early in the lobbies of the theaters there in in Copenhagen. He would make it a point to walk around the crowd, shake as many of the mover and shaker's hands as he could. He would smile and he would uh, banny up. He would chat with that crowd of high society there in Copenhagen. And, And then he would walk in and once the play started, he would rush home and he would write. 
And he carefully timed all of this to the point to where he would be back in the lobby in time for intermission. Once again, he would you know, make sure he was seen. He would shake the hands of all of that. This one person said this facade of gaiety. But you see, what most didn't understand is they thought he was a part of the high society. They thought he was a part of the crowd. But really, he, he wrote some of the most scathing social commentary on Danish society that has ever been published. He didn't put his name to it, and so no one knew it was the guy that they all loved and enjoyed. But he, a, a, you know, he kind of showed himself around, and then he'd, he'd, he'd go and write that. One of the frequent targets... Kierkegaard's writings was the church he found that the church of that time there in Denmark was so far removed from the teachings of Jesus that it was almost laughable and he would not spare any punches he he would begin with the state paid professional clergy who so watered down Jesus's message as it was almost unrecognizable if you would try to compare it to the word of God it was in reality a whole other gospel and he, he would he would look at those that called themselves church members whose everyday lives lacked passion lacked commitment one of the ways that he did this was he told the story of a magical land inhabited only by ducks and there in this land of, of, of ducks, there was a duck church. And one fine Lord's Day, he wrote, all of the ducks dutifully waddled to duck church. And there the parson duck opened his beak and delivered his homily. And he opened his duck Bible to the place where he spoke of God's great gift to ducks, wings. And he pounded the pulpit with his wing and he said, We ducks can fly. With wings we mount up with eagles and we soar the heavens. With wings we can escape the confinement of pins and fences. With wings we can know the utter euphoria of unfettered freedom. And we must give God thanks for this great gift of wings. To which all of the ducks stood up, clapped their their uh, what do they call it wings and 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 uh, stomped their feet and made a loud noise and they said amen and they turned around and they waddled home preacher went on to ask this question he said or, or a preacher went on to uh, to ask this question regarding the stuff that Soren Kierkegaard had, had said about what would he say if he looked at American Christianity today not just Danish Christianity back in the 1600s, but what about today? I wonder if he would say anything about the lack of obedience to Jesus' command. You know, the one that where he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. You know, it's, it's interesting. We could, we could possibly focus on loving God with all of our souls that 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 represents the will and the purpose. It represents uh, what, what someone said is the vitality of life, the motivating power that brings us, uh, uh, it brings us strength. And so perhaps we could say we love him with all of our soul because it's our soul that cries out to him. But it's more than that. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what it means to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And, and, I, I've used this often because I feel like it's one of those crucial places in the Bible. 
you, you know me, you've been around my preaching enough, you know that almost every sermon somewhere will end up at Acts 2.38 or something along that. It's because it's a crucial element of, of our faith. It's a crucial element of the words of Jesus. It's, it's where we see Jesus' commandments being acted out. So it only makes sense we ought to do what they did because they're the ones that walked with Jesus. And so maybe those of you, I know some of you are great note takers and you keep uh, great notes. In fact, uh, Sunday brother uh, 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 Brian Whitman came up to me and remembered a sermon I preached a year ago. I don't even remember the sermon. I, had to, I said, I have no idea which sermon that is. I still got to go find it and figure out how it was. But uh, so, so you may hear some of this that I've preached in years past, but it's because this, I believe, is the most important thing. In fact, the Bible says it's the greatest commandment. And so if it's the greatest commandment, then we ought to follow it. Love the Lord thy God. So with, you, with this in mind, I want to invite you to turn with me to um, the book of Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, you, you find an interesting uh, stories that begin to play out. You find that, that the religious leaders of this time, they, they did everything they could to trip Jesus up. They, they could not just, you know, grab Jesus and go hang him on the cross. First off, uh, the Jews did not have the, that authority under the Roman rule, and so they would have had to have found something that they could take to the Roman courts and say, he, he's, he's disobeyed this, he's disobeyed this law. And if they could find it, they would do it. They needed a legitimate reason to arrest Jesus. And so if you begin to look in, in Mark chapter 12, you begin to find all sorts of ways that they would try to uh, mess Jesus up. So first off, they asked him about taxes. Look at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are true and don't care about anyone's opinions. You're not swayed by appearances, but truly you teach the way of God. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. It was a coin. It represented a day's wages during that time. And he said, whose likeness, whose inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said unto them, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. By the way, there's a whole other statement on that, or another sermon, if you will. There's a sermon about the, the two natures, God's nature and man's nature. And, and, and one, of the, one of the kind of things you can take out of it is whose image is on it. Well, could I ask you a question? And whose image are you made in? In what life are you fashioned after? If you are made in the image of God and you belong to him, then you ought to be submitted to him and give to him what is his. Whose image is it? And he messed them all up. They marveled at him. They got, you know, they kind of sat back. There's not much they could say about that. It's a pretty good answer. And then the Sadducees come and, and, and they say to him, and, and the Sadducees was a, a, a portion of the learned clergy there of, of the Jewish faith. And the Sadducees had decided there is no resurrection. 
the Sadducees had kind of decided that who you are on earth is just who you are and there's really not much to look forward to after death. And so they came to him and they said in verse 18 and verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife but leaves no child, then that man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brothers. And so uh, you go all the way back to Moses' law. There was a, a, a portion of law that said if, if, uh, I, you know, if I passed away during that time and I had no children and Brienne was left without a husband, then it would be my brother's responsibility to bring that into the family and to take care. They didn't have Social Security back then. And there were these, these laws that were in there. And, but they took it a step further and they said, so picture this, Jesus. There, they, there were seven brothers and the first one took a wife. And, and he died, left no offspring. And so the second one took her, and he died, and, and he had no offspring. And the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, until they get to the seventh, and the seventh one died. And so in reality, she'd have been married seven times as that played out. And so in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? I can't remember exactly offhand where it is, but... Uh, there's a verse in the Bible that says avoid foolish questions. And Jesus looked at him and he said, is, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush how God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And the English Standard Version says you're quite wrong. That's a really polite way of saying you're stupid. You know, these are Sadducees. They, they have devoted their entire life. The Pharisees had devoted their entire life to reading the Scriptures and understanding the Scriptures. In fact, some of them, that's all they did. And yet Jesus says, have you not even read? Did you not even pay attention to this part? And, and so they, you know, they, they, they were speechless. They couldn't argue. The, when, when the Lord begins to quote from Moses' teaching, he muzzled the Sadducees. He knocked their doctrine of no resurrection right out of the water. And then one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, this scribe, another place calls it a lawyer, says which commandment is most important of all. Now, I would tell you today that this man didn't have the same uh, mindset as the others. He, he was a little bit different. They, they, the, the, the one that chose to confront him was a lawyer, a scribe. and he, he, It wasn't a lawyer like you would think of, you know, one of those sleazy lawyers you, you see on billboards. But this is a lawyer whose expertise would have been in Mosaic law. And maybe, just maybe, he would have been one of those that were called when there was uh, religious or social d disputes and he would have to come. He was probably one of the most learned, most astute experts on scriptural and rabbinical law that they would have had. And if anybody would have been a match for Jesus, this man probably would have been the closest. And so he comes and, 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 and he begins to ask the Lord, what is the greatest commandment of all? Now let me, let me, let me take out of this story. Let me back up for a second. 
the law during this time was hotly debated. The law had, it, it had gone through so many things. In fact, there's a, a man by the name of Fred Brown. He, he's an evangelist. I don't know of what denomination, but he uses three images to describe what the law does. And I like the way he does it. First, he likens the law to the dentist's little mirror. You know the one they stick in your mouth when you, you know, they're trying to look and when they got it halfway stuck down your tonsils, they ask you a really long question and they expect you to answer? You know, that one. With that little mirror, the dentist can detect the cavities. He can, he can look behind the teeth. He can see abscesses. He can see uh, if you brushed or flossed or haven't done either of those. But that mirror doesn't drill and that mirror doesn't pull any teeth and that mirror doesn't pack anything in there. It can show the decayed area, but it cannot provide the solution. That's what the law did. I would take you, I'd bring you right back to Rome, the book of Romans and especially Romans chapter 7 and show you that the law, all it does is tell you whether you're sinning or not sinning. It's so black and white, it's either you failed or you haven't failed. But it cannot do anything to save you. The law, the second one that Fred Brown says, the law is like a flashlight. If suddenly at night all the lights go out, you grab a flashlight, you turn it on, and it leads you, it guides you perhaps down the darkened basement stairs to the electrical box, and, and you can find the breaker that's been flipped by the light of that. It helps you see the one that's flipped, but if you keep holding that flashlight in your hand, it's never going to flip that breaker on. It simply shows you what's bad. Now, we use... We use breaker boxes. How many of you remember the old fuse boxes? My grandmother's house, uh, part of it still had the old screw-in fuses. And, and I've seen people put other things in there that wasn't necessarily the right fuse. And so you, you can bridge the gap with some other piece of metal. I mean, uh, you could try, I guess, to insert that flashlight into the fuse container, but it's not going to work. You've got to allow the flashlight to show you what's missing or what's broken, and then you've got to fix it, rectify it. That's what the law is. Or the third image that Fred Brown uses is the law is like a plumb line. I want you to imagine, and, and, and if you've ever seen people who do, uh, who, who do masonry work, brick work, or if you've ever watched somebody put a fence up, they'll take a line and they'll stretch it between two points. And that line, after they stretch it, is straight. And as long as everything butts up against that line perfectly, it will be straight. It will be true, if you will. Or back then they didn't have levels but what they would do is they'd take a string and they would tie a weight on the end of it and you could hang that string down and if you would allow it to quit spinning and circling and you'd let it hang vertical that was as close to vertical as you could get and they could measure stuff. The law will show you if you've made a mistake the law will show you if you're leaning one direction or the other the law points out the problem but it doesn't provide a solution so they come and they're asking, what is the greatest commandment in the law? This lawyer was not being scornful, I believe. He, he, he wasn't trying necessarily to trip Jesus up like the others were doing. Maybe even he had a respect for Jesus and perhaps even had a hunger to walk after the path that Jesus had left. And he asks, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And in reality, this is what he was asking. What is the greatest commandment? Of Moses. The scribes and the Pharisees 
looked at the whole Old Testament to be the authority, to be the law, not just the five books of Moses. Uh, but but they, they, they looked at Moses to be the supreme human figure of all history. All scripture. If the scribes and the Pharisees, you can read it in the book of Matthew, it says they sat in Moses' seat. What that meant was they were, they were sitting, they were representing the ultimate authority in Judaism. I love from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he would say things like this. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one jot, not one smallest letter, not one dot or tittle or stroke of the pen will pass from the law until it's all been accomplished. Jesus is walking on earth and he says it over and over and over. I've not come to do away from Moses' teaching. I'm not necessarily saying that this is a new gospel you got to follow. I'm simply fulfilling what the, law, what the law that I gave to Moses said. He made it clear. I'm not getting rid of the law of Moses. I'm fulfilling it. Now, some... Some have said, and, and, and there's a lot of different ways you can look at this, but let me just take you down one rabbit trail for a moment. Jesus' teaching of Scripture was so contrary to what they uh, believed, and, and for centuries upon centuries, what God had given Moses on top of Mount Sinai had, had slowly but surely been covered up by man's fingerprints. So they, you know, they, that, that's why they got all mad at Jesus when, when they're walking through a, a field and some of the disciples picked a little bit of corn, picked a little bit of wheat because they were hungry. And, oh, my goodness, you worked on the Sabbath day. You're, you're, you know, you're, we, we need to stone you right there. But over the years, someone has determined that the rabbis uh, figured out that there was 613 separate letters in the Hebrew text of the Ten Commandments. They also said in the book of Numbers there were 613 laws in the Pentateuch. And there were, uh, uh, in, 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 in that letterism, they, they loved it and they began to look at that. So they divided these 613 laws into laws that were affirmative or you do this or they were laws that were negative or that, that says you can't do this. And, and they decided that there were 248 affirmative laws and they said that meant one for every part of the human body and there were 365 negative laws that was one for each day of the year and then they divided the laws into laws that were heavy and laws that were light the laws that were heavy you had to obey and the laws that were light not quite as binding but even then nobody agreed on that they would spend hours arguing back and forth which law was heavy and which law was light I'd take you to the book of Acts. Uh, uh, Paul is meeting, you know, he, he's being called to question. And Paul, you got the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Paul's smart. He starts talking about the resurrection. Well, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So they start hollering and screaming. And the Pharisees start hollering and screaming. And Paul just kind of walks out and says, y'all, y'all do whatever you're going to do. They love to argue. They love to try to figure it all out. They, they, they tried to debate the merits of what they thought the law said or, or dispute the law that someone else said. And some said that the greatest law would have been the law of circumcision. 
others of that camp would have said oh no the greatest commandment would have been the law of the Sabbath another one would have would have proudly stood up and written treaties about no it's the law of sacrifices and so they would they would argue they would spend countless hours and now they come to Jesus and they say Jesus what is the greatest commandment of all and they know that Jesus is going to say something and then they can all argue and gripe and then it, you know if he says it's the law of circumcision then all those that don't like that law as being the greatest they'll fight and they'll get you know get Jesus on the wrong side of them and and he's ready he's hoping that that they are hoping that Jesus would somehow contradict Moses and if you contradicted Moses you were contradicting God thus you would be in heresy and they could get rid of it I, that's a long time for me to get right here but Jesus what is the greatest commandment Jesus looks at him and he says the first of all the commandments is this hear O Israel the Lord our God is one Lord and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Now I want you to listen to me very carefully. Did you notice nowhere in that did he say the greatest commandment is to obey God? And here's why I want you to see this. Because it is absolutely possible to obey God and not love him. You can obey someone just because you don't want the consequences. You can obey him half-heartedly. But you cannot love God and not obey him. Love is, is it, it, it causes you to obey. For if you love him, you will keep his commandments. And so the Lord knew what he was saying. He, he pulls from Moses' teaching. He pulls from Deuteronomy 6, 5. And, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thine might. He pulled from Deuteronomy 4, 29. And from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God. Thou shalt find him if you seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. He pulls from Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 13. And it shall come to pass if you hearken diligently unto my commandments which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul that I will give you the rain in your land in its due season, the first rain and the latter rain that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass to thy fields for thy cattle that thou mayest eat and be full. Jesus pulled from Moses' teaching. But the question remains of this. If we're supposed to love them with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, how do you accomplish that? Well, first, you love. Now, this would have been the Hebrew word, heb, but it's the same word that you've heard translated in the Greek as agape. It's, it's the, the, a word, it's a love that, that comes out of a sense of willful and dedicated determination to someone. Yeah, there's emotion involved. Anytime you love something, there has to be some emotion. But it's more than emotion. It's a mindset. And again, I've said this several times, but in every, every premarital uh, council session I do, and I won't, uh, you know, I don't marry people without them giving me a chance to, to, to speak into their life. And I ask this question, what is love? And I get a whole lot of different answers. 
it's an emotion. It's it's a verb. It, it's a, you know, and then they go on. But I, I would tell you that love is not strictly an emotion. Love is a choice. It comes from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44 where Jesus said, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. And I would posit to you, you cannot emotionally love an enemy. Again, I've said it. Let me say it again. If someone comes and punches you in the face, your emotions ought not or should not run to some lovey-dovey, ooey-gooey, sappy love. Instead, I assume your emotions rise to more of where's the closest baseball bat. If your emotions, if your emotions run to that lovey, gushy stuff after being hit in the face, you're a sadomasochist and you need professional counseling and this church can provide that for you. All right, but you have to love. Maybe, maybe it it shows up in emotions. Maybe it shows up in actions. But it starts by saying, "I choose to love him." Out of all of the things in this world that I could love, I love him. I choose to love him. And not only do I just say I love you, God, but I love you with all my heart. All of my heart. Now, remember that, that they didn't have the, the benefit that you and I have of, uh, of all of these years of study of the human anatomy. They didn't have MRIs and CAT scans. They, they didn't have the, the atomical, uh, uh, or, uh, the, the anatomy and the nature and, and all of those things that, that we get now. And, but, but they knew that the heart was the center of a person. It was the thoughts, it was the feelings that they would say. It was the emotions, if you will. And so part of my love to him will show forth in my thoughts, in my feelings, and in my emotions. Which is why I'm so thankful that I can, I can love God with all my heart. I kind of have a problem when someone doesn't ever show any emotion but says I love God. I've told this story before, but... But, and and I've, I've told it to her, so it's not anything new. But I had a young lady in our youth group back in, in, in Ohio, and she was a very stoic person. And as you can tell, I'm not that stoic. I, I like to get excited. If we're playing outside on the ball field, uh, I, I, can, I can yell and scream and hoop and holler with the best of them. If, if I, I had that bass on my wall, that big seven-pound bass, you can ask Billy Glenn. He was on the other side of the 10-acre lake when I caught it. He heard me screaming. In fact, they probably heard me screaming back into Quincy. But, but she, she told me one day, she said, Brother Buford, I'm, I'm never going to get emotional in my worship. I'm just not an emotional person. But she played volleyball. And every time, and she was a tall girl, every time she could spike that ball and knock it off the opponent's face, man, she'd get crazy. She'd jump up and down, she'd scream, and she'd holler, and I'd had enough. One night, I went to one of her games, Christian school, went to one of her games, and I walked right on the course, and I looked in her face. I said, I thought you said you weren't emotional. I said, I said, it don't work for me. I said, if you can be that emotional because you hit a volleyball across a, a, a net, then that same emotion, in fact, I dare say even more than that emotion ought to be given to the Lord because the Bible says I should love the Lord with all of my heart. 
And so there's a reason I jump. There's a reason I clap my hands. There's a reason I sing with abandon. There's a reason that I pray. There's a reason tears run down my face. There's a reason the goosebumps rise all over me. It's because I've learned to love him with all of my heart. But I, I, I would tell you that that love, if you're not careful, can be fleeting. Because that love could be tied so much to an emotion that it's really hard to get into it if there's no music going. It's real hard to, to you know, when, on a Sunday night when everything is just popping and going and you've spent a couple minutes before service praying and you're in the mindset and you're right there and the music is playing and people are shouting and everyone around just got their hand raised. It's easy to let that emotion rise and give them your all. But what about Monday morning? So if you only love the Lord your God with all your heart, sometimes when the emotions don't feel like it, the worship's not there. The love is not there. So the Lord says, well, how about we not stop at just the heart, but let's love the Lord thy God with all of thy mind. It's the deep thoughts. It's the faculty of the mind. It's the exercise of the mental. That sometimes when I don't feel like loving God, sometimes when the bad things happen, sometimes when the waves crash down, I just have to get to the place where I think myself happy. And I think myself to the place, Lord, with all of my mind, I will worship you. I may not feel like clapping my hands. I may not feel like running the aisles. But I know in whom I have believed. I've made up my mind. That no matter what comes, no matter what happens, no matter what comes against me, you are God and God alone and there's no one beside you. And so I've learned to love him not just with my emotions, not with my heart alone, but with my, my mind as well. I could worship the Lord with all of thy soul. I got those out of order. It's thy heart and then thy soul. Thy soul, and I mentioned this earlier, it's the seat of will and purpose. Some, some writers have said it's the source of vitality in life. It's the motivating power that brings strength to the will. And I would tell you that this is the most important one. Because your soul is the thing that bears the fingerprints of God. The soul, it's, it's not these lungs that receive the breath of God at life. It was that soul. The soul, the Bible says when God breathed into Adam, man became a living soul. It's what separates us from the animals. It's what separates us from everything else out there. And so with my soul, with my will, with my purpose, I serve God. And I serve him with all my strength. You could use that as strength of a physical nature or you could also use it as power and strength as it relates to its forcefulness. I'm going to love him with everything I got. And you put it all together you can't separate any of it there's not three or four different ways to love God and you choose today to love him one way and another day to love him another way but instead true love incorporates all those natures love him with all your heart love him with all your soul love him with all your mind love him with all your strength now I've used this illustration before but I like it there's a pastor by the name of Joel Smith that talks about he and his wife Laura. They bought a baby green iguana. They named him Stanley. And they, they bought a cage and a hot rock and an iguana instructional book and everything else you need for a lizard to be happy, I guess. I didn't know lizards could be happy, but there you go. 
They said at the, at the uh, 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 pet store, the, the lady said just feed him fresh fruits and vegetables and he'd be fine. I mean, how hard is it to take care of a lizard? You don't walk them, you, you, know, you can't teach them to play fetch, they just kind of are there. And so they got him home, they got little Stanley home and, and, and everything was good. But after a few months they noticed that little Stanley didn't look so hot. He hadn't grown at all and, and maybe, you know, maybe lizards take a while to grow. So they gave it a year and at the end of the year they noticed that his head had grown. His head looked normal but his body was puny, his body was weak. And they said he was a pathetic, irritable reptile, even more irritable than normal. Finally, someone came by who had raised iguanas in the past and looked and said, you know, he looks bad. And they began to question the feeding procedures. And then she said, well, here's the problem. Iguanas need sunlight. They, 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 they get, you know, they, they, they need the sunlight to properly digest their food. And so they cannot digest their food if they don't have the vitamin D that comes from the sun. That's why you see the lizards out there uh, not just to regulate their temperature, but they need the sun. And if you don't have direct sunlight, you got to give them a special vitamin supplement and so they went back to the drawing board and they found this stuff that they called iguana chow and it had that 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 stuff in it and pretty soon the lizard started getting big now pastor joel smith said that his attitude didn't improve at all but they found out later stanley was a female and that explained it but that's just what joel said not what i said <clears throat> But, but this pastor, he, he used his own uh, 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 experiences with his iguana and he said this, he said this is the problem though in our churches today. We haven't developed followers of Christ in the way that Jesus prescribed. If you don't follow the procedure, then you'll develop a lack of passion. And this is what he says. And remember, he's referring to his iguana. He said, sometimes we become a church full of people with gigantic heads, full of knowledge, but little bitty bodies that are weak and frail. Why? Because we're passionless. You can't love God with just your intellect. Because if you only love God because of what you know, it produces a head knowledge. And I will tell you today that, that, that knowledge is not believing and it's even not really even faith. In fact, the Bible says that the devils believe and they tremble. So the devils have a head knowledge and they tremble, but they don't love God. You, you, you can't accomplish your love of God by only emotions because again, the devils react emotionally. They tremble, but they don't love God. You can't just show your love in just some big show of strength because that kind of love burns out pretty quickly when the strength tires. Instead, love is a complete act of heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I would tell you today that if you're having problems, perhaps figuring out these areas of your life let me give you some verses that will help guide your prayer if you're having problems with your with loving God with all of your heart then I would tell you to pray David's prayer of Psalms 51 verse 10 create in me a clean heart O God and renew a right spirit within me cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit I'm going to tell you right now if you can pray that and, and quote that and read that and make that your own if that doesn't move you then I'm not going to be able to help you 
But when I begin to start praying like that, Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Cast me not away from thy presence. It's only right that my heart reaches up and my emotions reach up and I grab hold of the presence of God and I begin to love him with all my heart. If it's your soul that you're having issues with, that will or that purpose of your life, then I would invite you to look at Matthew chapter 10 and verse 38. He that taketh not up his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. For he that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. If you really want to love God, you're going to have to purpose in your soul. I'm going to take up his cross. I'm going to follow him. The message, and I don't, I don't like to use the message very often. It says a lot of the verses pretty good, but it's pretty weak on some of the verses that it needs to be strong on. But allow me to use the, the message translation because this is what it says. If you don't, now remember, he that taketh not up his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. He that findeth life shall lose it. He that loses life for my sake shall find it. So that's where we're at. If you don't go all the way with me through thick and thin, you don't deserve me. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. I like the way that, that says. If you don't go all the way with me through thick and thin, the Lord says you don't deserve me. If you serve God only when the paychecks come in and they look good and, and, and when everything's rosy, but, but as soon as life gets rocky, you kind of throw it away, you don't deserve God. Because I've walked with God in the valleys and I've walked with God in the mountains and I've found that He's the same in both places. The New Living Translation says this, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of mine. And if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. If you really want to love God, you've got to love Him with that purpose. Your soul says, with all that is within me, I will praise you. If your mind or your intellect is where you struggle to love him Romans 12 and verse 1 through 2 will be one of the places you need to visit. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your body a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service and be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good an acceptable will of God. Every once in a while, you need to find a place to pray and say, Lord, renew my mind. I, I've got stuff. I've got thoughts and intellect and knowledge up there that's just not right. I need you to, I need to do a reboot like the old computers had to do. Just turn it off and turn it back on. Let me start again. Renew my mind, Lord. Let me follow your word. Let me, let me read it. And when I read your word, would you let your word come alive to me? Let me, let me get it in my mind, in my heart. And if it's your strength, I'd remind you of Isaiah chapter 40. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Would you stand with me today? What's the greatest commandment, Lord? Oh, it's easy. Thou shalt, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then I like the way, we, we didn't go this far, but Jesus says, and there's a second really good commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Can I tell you that, that you can't do the second until you do the first? You can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you can't do that, you're never going to love your neighbor. But if you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you begin to love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to find that there's no greater commandments than these. And so I'm encouraging you. I'm challenging you. I'm asking you. Don't just love him with your emotions. Don't just love him with your intellect. Don't just love him because your soul cries out to him. Don't love him just with your strength. All those come together. And if you can learn to love him in those four areas as one, then you have found and you are following the greatest commandment of all. And everything else will fall into place. I wonder if you just close your eyes. Perhaps somewhere in this, one of them jumped out at you. You said, Lord, I gotta, I gotta work on that part. Maybe I'm good at the emotional side of that love to you. I can worship you when I feel like it, but God, I gotta learn to worship you when I don't feel like it. So why don't you just begin to talk to him and then why don't you exercise that love? Why don't you let that be? Perhaps if you don't like the word love, let me talk to you about your passion for the things of God and for God himself. See, this is what I desire to do. This is what I want to do. This is what I was created to do. Lord, with all 